This episode is brought to you by Bumble. So you want to find someone you're compatible with, specifically someone who's ready for a serious connection, totally open to having kids in the future, is a tall rock climbing Libra, and loves rom-coms with vegan pizzas on Tuesdays just as much as you do. Bumble knows that you know exactly what's right for you. So whatever it is you're looking for, Bumble's features can help you find it. Date now on Bumble. Grey's Anatomy, the most iconic binge-worthy drama, is back, along with answers to the biggest cliffhangers. Will Teddy survive? Will Joe and Link finally find happiness together? Meredith returns along with fan faves like Arizona. You can now stream every episode of Grey's ever on Hulu and new episodes next day. Watch the season premiere of Grey's Anatomy tonight at 9, 8 central on ABC and stream on Hulu. Produced by WBUR and the Boston Globe. From WBUR Boston and the Boston Globe, this is Last Scene. I'm Kelly Horan. By the end of a process like the one to put together an investigative podcast about the most sensational unsolved art heist in history, the only thing more cluttered than our brains is the cutting room floor. There are characters and storylines and theories that are so compelling, we just couldn't fit them all in or go quite as deeply with them as we'd have liked. Enter a Last Scene Live event, a recording of which you're about to hear. Last Scene fans in the Boston area joined me and my colleagues Jack Rodolico and Stephen Kirkton as we spoke candidly about the Gardner mystery and took the audience behind the scenes of the last year and a half of our reporting. The event took place at the Great Hall at Faneuil Hall in Boston and was part of the Globe Docs Film Festival. And we were joined on stage by our WBUR colleague and host of the Endless Thread podcast, Ben Brock Johnson. Welcome, guys. How's it going? Oh, well. Very well. Always good when we're with you, Ben. Likewise. Um, I feel like you guys have been, uh, you've been sitting down on the couches near where we uh, do our work at the iLab for so long, having these like really deep conversations um, about the reporting that you're doing, and we've all been listening to the episodes as they've come out, which has been incredible, but I'm really excited to talk about the behind-the-scenes stuff with you. Um, so thanks for being willing to do this. Um, Kelly, I want to start with you. Um, as you prepared yourself to tackle this story and this project, what were you most excited about? Well, I was most excited, I think, about the journalistic challenge of taking on a story that has been so often told in many places and in many ways and in trying to make it new and fresh um, one of the things I vowed before I took it, took it on was to never say the sentence, two men dressed as police officers. <laughs> <laughs> because I think that if you, uh, if you can't even change up the, the basic facts, if they lose their sharp edges, then, um, you know, how can you make it new? And so I wanted to go back to the beginning and... 
um, bring listeners something that they hadn't heard. And it's been gratifying because I've heard from people who said, oh, I heard about a podcast of the Gardner Heist. And I thought, so what? But then I heard the voices. And you hear the, the terror in a security guard's voice. You hear the outrage in a defense attorney's voice. You hear the, um, the disbelief in a suspect's voice. And, um, and that just made me glad that I picked radio 25 years ago because it's all about the voice. Um, and then I also was wondering, can, can we make a podcast about art um, that people will want to listen to? And that doesn't sound like masterpiece theater. And that, um, that makes you care that this is missing. And I think the jury is still out on that. But I have heard from people that they're, they're happy when we talk about the art. So. I Wait, think what's that, wrong with Masterpiece Theater? I love... People who know me will tell you that this, this entire thing would have been a period costume drama. <laughs> <laughs> totally fair. But, um, you know, I think that it was the journalistic challenge of taking a story that is out there for everyone to read about and to bring new things to it and to advance it, I think. So I hope we did that. Jack, talk to me about um, why you think this story is still riveting. I mean, it's been 20 years, right? Um, why is it still compelling? I, th I think the grabbiest thing about the story is that the FBI hasn't solved it, right? And it's 20, and that's not a dig at the FBI. It's a really difficult case to solve. Um, but there are a lot of superlatives when you look at this crime, the way it was done. There are parts of it that play on ideas you have in your mind of the way somebody would pull off a heist, dressing up as cops and tricking someone um, and taking a Rembrandt. You know, there are certain things, even if you don't know anything about art, which I would put myself firmly in that category, you know who Rembrandt is loosely. Um, so those things grab you. And then all you have to do is dig just under the surface and you realize it does not line up with your thinking about what an art heist is at all. You know, there's, 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 there are no cat suited, there, what, what's the word, cat burglars, right? Cat suited burglars. <laughs> yes, there's no cat burglars um, and there's really almost no good information about where they are. I think we've told a good story despite that, but one thing that Steve said from the very beginning, which was terrifying, <laughs> <laughs> think about how we're going to do this as a podcast was, but it really stuck with, in my mind is the whole, everything is feathers when you look at this story, when you look at what the FBI has done and, and they have worked really diligently, it's feathers, it's still theories after almost three decades. Mm. Um, so you can kind of implant whatever you want on that in your mind mm. um, and then you start looking for facts and they're fascinating but they still don't lead you to the to the art. I think if it was solved 10 years after, we wouldn't be talking about it now. Steve, you're, you're the OG here, I feel like. Um, you, you've been covering this story for decades, right? You wrote a book about the case called Master Thieves. So you bring this level of experience with the story that I think is really unique. And I won't pretend that reporters don't have a reputation for being like a dog with a bone when it comes to a, a certain story. Right. Um, but why haven't you let this thing go? Thank you, that's a great question. And uh, I, I think it all goes down to uh, the title of Nat Hentoff's biography, Boston Boy. And I am the Boston Boy. Hmm. 
uh, I grew up in Boston, went to public schools in Boston, um, and uh, joined the Globe at a young age, and joined the Spotlight team when it was founded. And understand, the Spotlight team thrives and, um, because of the kind of reporting it does, purposeful reporting. And that's the way I felt about this story right from the start, uh, that this needed some hard reporting, and as an investigative reporting, a, a reporter from my career, I do hard reporting. And I kept thinking there's a higher purpose to this. And understand, it's as we sp spoke here, 28 years, the largest art theft in world history. And it happened here, in my city, in our city. And I just felt that if uh, I continued on it, it gave it more coverage, it would reach a larger audience, which is going back to why I feel this podcast is so special. And I'm just thrilled that I've been aboard with both Jack, with both Jack and Kelly and their team at, um, at WBUR. The Globe has done a lot with this story, but it needed this partnership, it needed this um, other media uh, to, to, get, to get heard. And I hope somehow, soon enough, we'll get, um, we'll get a recovery. That's my hope. Hmm. So in any narrative, it's the people that can make or break the story. It's good news that last scene is buttressed not just by this incredible story, which of course we'll get into even more, but by a really colorful cast of characters we get to meet in this podcast. And again, I've been lucky enough to hear some of those, both as a listener and, and as somebody who's been talking to you guys about the show as you've been making it. Um, but we, we, it's, it seems like there's an endless number of them. Um, we get to meet these people, explore their intertwining relationships. Steve, do you have a favorite moment, um, a, fa a favorite character, a favorite relationship between characters in the podcast? I met a bad guy who worked with a good guy uh, to do a remarkable thing here, uh, which was to open up a, a crime syndicate about to do a, a major uh, robbery of an um, armored car depot. And uh, Dave Nadolsky is his name. He's the FBI agent who got this young man uh, to do all sorts of daring do, but only because of the trust that they built with one another. Um, agent to uh, informant, were we able to avoid an amazing, amazing art theft, excuse me, a bank, a bank armored car robbery that only because of the trust that these two men had. Hmm. Jack, what about you? Um, the interview that I can't shake from my memory um, was uh, an attorney named Ryan McGuigan, and we interviewed him at BUR, there wasn't even a studio that day. We just sat in an office. And so there was nothing, there was no scene built around him. There was nothing particularly spectacular about where we interviewed him. But he is a fascinating defense attorney because um, he defends the latest, I'll call the latest uh, person of interest in the Gardner investigation, which is a Connecticut, uh, aging Connecticut mobster, octogenarian named Bobby Gentile. He's sitting in prison right now because of his suspected connection to the, to the paintings, not to the heist, but to the paintings. And Ryan has defended this guy tooth and nail 
for six years, the FBI set his client up on two different stings. They got him to commit crimes twice. They held all this pressure over him to um, try to get him to talk about the paintings, and he never did. And the interesting thing about McGuigan is that he has a lot of theories about why that is that expand beyond, well, my client has nothing to do with it, right? I mean, that's what every defense attorney is going to say. He's a defending mobster, so you can't totally trust the guy. I mean, he's, you know, let's be honest, right? But what he has that very few people have, very, very few people, is that he has looked inside the FBI investigation. He's looked over the fence with a very um, particular lens and with an eye on defending his client, but there are so few people who would speak to us who had any experience with the FBI and their tactics. And he makes a really compelling case that um, the FBI has tried again and again to squeeze individuals by uh, helping them commit other crimes or, or catching them in the act of committing other crimes. And, um, and then saying, okay, we're going to send you to jail if you don't talk. And it, it hasn't worked yet. I mean, it's, it's a good tactic. It often works. But it leaves you scratching your head as to, why won't these guys talk? Is it because they don't know something? Or they do something and they still won't say something about it? Um, but he's just sort of lived it in a way that very few people have. I mean, he's mm -hmm. exasperated with his client. He's exasperated with the FBI. He doesn't like anybody who has ever touched the Gardner investigation, and he can tell you why and when he stopped liking them. So <laughs> I like him a lot. Kelly, I know you have some favorite characters as well. Um, I really want to hear from you about Isabella Stewart Gardner, though, because this is the person that I didn't know anything about before hearing this show, and she's had a huge impact um, not only in the city, but she's a really important character, obviously, in the story. So can you talk a little bit about her? If I must. <laughs> um, it was one of my favorite parts of one of the episodes that we've heard so far, is hearing you talk about her. So, um, you know, I was so glad to be able to do a true crime podcast without the dead woman trope, and then I realized there is a dead woman at the heart of my podcast. <laughs> Except she's so alive to me. Um, Isabella Stewart Gardner, I would say, is the animating force of this podcast, of this investigation. Uh, we are all here tonight because of what she built over in the Fens. And it's true. I, I, I do love her. She wasn't um, uncomplicated. And it's like well, all of the characters that we bring to you in the podcast, it's, it's not one thing or another. It's not good or bad or black or white. I mean, there were nuances. But what she, uh, what she valued, among other things, was art. And so that's what she gave us. And um, in order for, for me, before I could really understand this heist and what it meant, I'm, I've never been good at numbers. I fudged my way through an econ major. <laughs> and my dad's in the front row and can tell you all about that, but um, $500 million didn't say anything to me. So I wanted to understand what that loss would have meant to her. So I read about her, I read her correspondence, and what I realized is that each of these pieces that was stolen was something that she chose. And not only something that she chose, but something that she put in its place. So when you go to the Gardner Museum and you see it where it is, it's where she wanted you to see it. I love control freaks. And I just thought, that is, that's something to aspire to. Um, 
But she built the whole museum as well. And, and I love this story. I mean, she drove the architect uh, probably to the brink because he'd, he'd have his Italian stonemasons that she brought over erect a wall and she'd come in and say, no, take it down, do it over. And then when she was frustrated that her stonemasons couldn't uh, recreate the exact Tuscan pink stucco for her courtyard, she climbed a ladder and she did it herself. Hmm. So, wow. she's my kind of lady. <laughs> and to understand what was lost, um, I'll take the Vermeer, the, the, the concert, as my example. So, you know, uh, many of the paintings that she collected were sight unseen. She had dealers abroad who said, this is why you should own this. But for the concert, she traveled to Paris and she went to the auction house and she sat there. She didn't bid herself, it would have been untoward, but every time the bid was raised higher, she would raise a handkerchief to her face to signal to her secret buyer in the room, go higher. And she went higher and she beat the Louvre Museum. Furious. They were furious when they found it. It was going to an American woman. <laughs> the concert was her first major acquisition and it, it, it put her on the map as a collector. But why did she love it? She loved it because her first love was music. And some say that her taste in music was more sophisticated than her taste in art, which... And in the concert, what we see, as John Updike wrote a poem called Stolen about the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum heist. And in it, he says, the concert is stopped between two notes. And you have a woman going like this. And Gardner, who loved music, responded to that, I think, viscerally. And now it's gone. And that, for me, was my way in to understanding why it mattered. Mm. Steve, you grew up with the museum. Um, you saw the paintings. So talk about how, in some ways, maybe we as a society didn't value this work until it was no longer ours. Yeah. I've thought long and hard um, about a recovery. How does a recovery happen? What this needs is, it needs the help of the public. What's been missing for this, except for one or two times, is a public appeal. A public appeal that would be powered by a social media campaign. And the more I thought about this in the summer of 2014, when every one of you kids were pouring a bucket of ice over your head <laughs> to raise money for ALS research. You know what that did that summer? It raised $80 million for ALS research. And I thought to myself, that's what's needed for this case. It's some media outreach. Because mm -hmm. that type of campaign would reach the people who most need to be reached, which is, let's say, the have-nots in society. Those people who know something. They don't know where the artwork is. I believe the FBI when they say the two thieves who stole it are dead. But they may have let this cousins or sisters or whatever know I know something. And it's those people who have to view this as a loss to all of us, including them. Why? Because this is the artwork of the ages. Everything passes. Art endures. And this is our art. Mrs. Gardner put those on the wall for us. Put them on the wall for my father. 
My father was a refugee from the Armenian Genocide as a three-year-old and came to Watertown and had a, sh showed interest in art. They, sent him, they got him a scholarship and every afternoon he would go back to the museum free of charge. She wanted all of us to be able to enjoy and be inspired by art. And that's as well in the bad guy world, in the have-nots. Their child, too, their grandchild, too, could be inspired by that art, as my father was, and became a successful commercial artist. So that's the hope that we, maybe even out of Hub Week, or the Globe Docs, an event like this, that a campaign can be built with social media to tell the world it's not ratting on your bad guys, it's not ratting on your third cousin who may have had something to know, know about something. It's, it's being able to inspire your children and your grandchildren with getting this artwork back. Remember what happened when Tom Brady's T-shirt that he wore, there were torchlight searches going on in my neighborhood. There's Rembrandt's missing. There's Vermeer missing. I want that enthusiasm. To come well to said. Now might be a good time to say if anyone here <laughs> has the art, feel free to let us know. I think there's some money involved. Um, so uh, let, let's just do a, a lightning round here, a real quick lightning round. Um, we, we have a special guest coming up. Uh, and I want to give them proper time. But, you know, one of the amazing things about this, uh, this story is just the, the theories of, you know, all these crazy theories of what might have happened to this artwork. And you guys chase a lot of them. So, Kelly, uh, lightning round, you know, I don't know, 30 seconds. What's your favorite crazy theory about what happened here? I have taken no end of ridicule for my theory. I just want you to know, because I want to feel your support and love right now. <laughs> um, my theory is that a man named Paul Sterling Vanderbilt, alias Paul Sterling Vanderbilt, who tried to rob a museum in upstate New York in 1980, returned to Boston to do it right a decade later. His name wow. was Brian McDevitt from Swampscott, Massachusetts. Wow, okay. Jack? You going for harebrained theory or like what I think happened? I mean, I'm a fan of harebrained, but that's just me. <laughs> okay, harebrained would be, um, <clears throat> if, if I am to believe. Aliens. Al no. You okay. know, sorry. you ask the questions, I answer them, okay? okay? Sorry. Talk fair, about it. fair. Aliens, no. Um, if, if, if I am to believe the former FBI agent who is the founder of the FBI's art crime team, um, that he got this close to getting some criminals to sell him the Vermeer and, and the, the Rembrandt Storm on the Sea of Galilee, um, then, then they were at least uh, 2007 in France or Corsica because that was the theory at the time. He was talking to these mobsters in Miami. They were connected to these criminals back on the other side of the ocean. They had really good intelligence coming in from French officials that were saying, yeah, these guys are talking about it on wiretaps, that they are there. 
And all right. And maybe sorry, that was probably more than thirty seconds. Your thirty seconds. <laughs> the theory are keeps going up. from there. Corskin mobsters. Corskin mobsters. Corskin mobsters. Okay. And door number three. My um, my favorite anecdote here on uh, on where they are uh, takes me into Bobby Gentile's living room where I had spent three days only fueled by Regina's pizza. He said, I'm only talking to you because you bring Regina's pizza. <laughs> uh, this was during that very uh, uh, brief six-month period that he wasn't behind bars. So at the, at the end of our third day of interviewing, he said to me, uh, shut off your tape recorder. I want to ask you some questions. And I said, sure, Bob. Shut off my tape recorder, and he said to me, uh, what do I get all about? What do I get for all this information I've given to you? And I thought to myself, what's he getting at? Maybe he thinks I'm an FBI agent and he wants, and he doesn't want to say anything because he's been denying, denying, denying for all that, all those three days that he had anything to do with it. So I put out a harebrained idea of he and I would write a book, but Bobby, I said, I need to know the truth. No more BS, no more denying. When did you get the paintings? What did you do with them? And where are they now? You tell me that. We'll write a, 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 you know, an incredible bestseller. You'll get all the money in the world, and you'll get the reward, and I'll get what I've all now long wanted for 20 years, which is a story about what happened to our paint, what happened to the gardener's paintings. Hmm. Bobby looks at me, and he doesn't say, you're crazy. He puts his head down, and he keeps it down for 10 seconds, and then he puts his head up and says, no, no, I don't know anything. So I get out to, his, to my car, said goodbye, and he, Bobby says, to, uh, said goodbye to Bobby, and I called Ryan McGuigan, his lawyer, and I said, McGuigan, he's been lying to you, he's been lying to the FBI, he's been lying to me for five hours. And McGuigan says, what, what the hell are you talking about? What did he say? And I told him about waiting for 10 seconds before turning down my offer to tell me the whole thing. I said, he knows something, he knows something. He says, you know what he was doing during that 10 seconds, Kirkshen? I said, no, what, what? He was waiting, he was thinking. He said, he wasn't thinking, he doesn't have anything. He was thinking to con you out of $10,000. <laughs> and he says, I know you wouldn't have given it to him, right, Steve? <laughs> You're right. <laughs> but another, you know, dead end. Fair enough. Was, uh, um, uh, I think Kelly won that round for keeping it under 30 seconds, but all of those... All of those ideas are good. Don't go away. There's more Last Seen Live coming, including a special guest you'll recognize from episode three, Not a Bunch of Jamokes. Here's a hint. He had a confidential source inside TRC Auto Electric. Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. The world's clean energy future relies on ancient elements still in the ground. Without mining, there will not be a clean energy transition. 
But pulling them out of the ground comes at an environmental and human cost. Mining is intrusive, but the results are the building blocks for products that we use every single day. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. Join me on point for Elements of Energy, Mining for a Green Future, five special episodes. Listen and follow On Point wherever you get your podcasts. Did you kill Marlene Johnson? I think you're one of the first people to have actually asked. From WBUR and ZSP Media, this is Beyond All Repair. A new podcast about an unsolved murder that will leave you questioning everything. Somebody should be in jail for murdering my sister. A woman who's never been believed. As long as they think I have done this, then they're not looking for who actually did this. And that's what makes it a cold case. No, it's a botched case. And a search for the truth, once and for all. Wow, it just gets more interesting. Beyond All Repair. Listen and follow wherever you get your podcasts. Be careful. You're digging in a place that's been very peaceful for a while. Do it anyway. Dig. Speaking of who done it, it is now time to welcome our special surprise guest to the stage. His name is David Nadolsky, a retired FBI agent who spent 21 years in the Bureau. Welcome, David. I'll give you a fist bump. Fist bump. There we go. Stand up. Stand up. Meet my twin brother. <laughs> we dress alike. Yeah, mommy still dresses us alike. <laughs> the Dalsky and Kirkshire, somewhere they meet. So uh, for those of you who have been listening, um, David is a, is a key character in episode three. Um, and uh, David, welcome. Thank you, thank you for being here tonight. Oh, my pleasure. Um, earlier this evening, Steve uh, shared that he sort of really appreciated the relationship between you and one of your confidential informants, uh, Anthony or Tony Romano. Um, Now, this is a reminder to everyone. Tony Romano was a member of the TRC Auto Electric Shop crew, the headquarters for mobster Carmelo Merlino's gang. Tony was tasked with giving you info on any conversations that had anything to do with the Gardner art. He was the man who came to you with the information, which resulted in a raid uh, for another heist. Dave, talk about your relationship with Tony. Well, um, Tony actually contacted me first at one time, before all this happened. Um, We had... um, had a robbery at the John Quincy Adams Museum uh, and several uh, uh, irreplaceable books were stolen at that time. And um, I was told that there was a prisoner at at Concord uh, Prison who uh, was interested in talking to me about this because he knows who did it. So I, I grabbed one of the detectives from Quincy and we ran out to Concord and um, across the street from the prison is a barracks for the state police, and he was working on their cars. This this guy is a, a mechanic, Whoa. 
And so he told one of the, uh, one of the uh, troopers, he said, uh, you know, I, I know something about this, this crime. Could you help me get it in front of an agent? So uh, that's what the trooper did. He contacted our office. I was called. I went there with the detective. We sat, found Tony in a, in a room upstairs in the, in the barracks, and he, he was just sitting in a chair like this. And um, so we sat down in front of him, and he was, he was wearing his prison dungarees, which are blue jeans, blue jean shirt, short sleeves, and his arms were covered in tattoos. For those of you listening at home, the way he was sitting was sort of lax in his chair and his head looking at the ceiling. Right. Exactly. <laughs> okay. And... Um, so uh, we said, hey, hi, how are you doing? I uh, understand you want to talk to us about, uh, about this crime. And, and uh, he just sort of looked at us and went back and looked up at the ceiling and didn't say much. And so I looked over at the detective and I thought, I said, you know, what's with this guy? And I said, well, you know, Tony, I know uh, you've got to get back to the prison here pretty soon. And uh, <laughs> we got things to do. But if you want to talk to us about this particular uh, crime, we're here. If it's a bad time, we'll come back. So he says, oh, okay. He goes, uh, Kevin Gilday did it. And I said, well, who's Kevin Gilday? And he said, he's a guy from Quincy. Uh, he, he's a burglar, and I've known him my, practically my whole life. And uh, we were in jail together, and he told me he was going to do this type of crime. He, want, he was really eyeballing that particular uh, job. And um, so I said, well, thanks. I appreciate that. And... Um, Long story short, it was Kevin Gilday, and it was uh, Tony's information to me that um, that helped solve that crime. We did recover the books. Gilday did five years, and um, all was well. Uh, so I called the um, parole board and and said, "Hey, you know, I, I want to talk to you about one of your guys." And of course, uh, they said, "Oh shit, no." What do you, who, who is it and what do you do now? So I said, well, he, he's a, he did something good, actually. His name's Anthony Romano, and I think he's coming up for parole. And I want you to know that he provided the information that allowed me to solve this case and get these books back. So he did a good job. And so they said, well, thank you. Appreciate that. Well, you don't, usually don't get good information on, on guys. So, um, and that was how I met Tony, anyhow in answer to the question. <laughs> so, the raid that was the result of Tony's work with the FBI, with you, um, brought a, a couple of key suspects into custody. You were there when everyone arrived and you tried to get information out of these folks coming in about the gardener. How did that come up? Yeah, well, just tell me about those conversations. Do, oh, yeah, do, sure. Were you like we do as reporters? You had a little notebook, and you're kind of yelling at them as they get brought in? Or hey. I worked with, uh, I worked with uh, the agent who was working on, on that particular case. And um, so after, you know, this whole thing came down with the armored car robbery, uh, we went and, um, and thought, well, what the heck, we'll, we'll give them... If they did know anything about this particular crime, um, we sat down with each one of them individually after after the arrest for the armored attempted armored car robbery, and and just said, um, 
you know, you're, you're really in a lot of trouble here. Hmm. Um, as such, you're, you know, you're looking at a lot of time. However, um, if you've got anything to say about the gardener, that's, that would help you. And each one said no. So that's how, I mean, that's the last time I talked to anybody about the gardener. Fair enough. Um, what makes some people talk and others uh, not talk? What happened when some of these folks realized that Tony Romano was an informant? Well, uh, obviously he was in a, a world of hurt because uh, <laughs> he, he had to leave town. Uh, and we had discussed all that beforehand. Originally, uh, and I had to go before the parole board, by the way, before we did anything and, and ask their, for their permission and get their permission to work with Tony, who was on parole. And they, when I explained to them that the only way into stopping this, this attempted crime, which was going to be the, the robbery of, a, of the Loomis Fargo vault facility in Easton, Massachusetts, where tens of millions of dollars was kept, was if we had somebody on the inside collecting information as the planning went forward. And they, they bought it and said, okay, uh, you, Tony can work with you. And then I said, but, you know, when it, when it all ends, they're going to know he was involved, so he's going to have to go into the witness security program and uh, leave the state of Massachusetts and, and have his state parole transferred to some other location, which they agreed to. So the next thing was to talk to Tony about this whole idea and say, Tony, if, if uh, this works out and the information you provide is true and accurate and we build a case and it comes down, then clearly they're going to know, okay, there's five of us in this committing this crime. There's four of us sitting here. Where's Tony? So they'll, they'll know you, you uh, cooperated. And he had to think about that for a long time because uh, he was a drug addict. And uh, the reason he was in prison a lot, which he was, was because he would, he would when he got out, he would get back on, on drugs and then he'd start doing holdups. You know, the, the thing that motivated him, I believe, was a desire to do something right for a change. And um, um, he did. Hmm. Um, why do you think the paintings haven't been found yet? Why, why haven't they been located? Yeah. Oh, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I have no idea. <laughs> Fair. <laughs> That's an episode. <laughs> um, Follow-up. <laughs> <laughs> Who do you think did it? Yeah, I got to tell you, I don't know. <laughs> I don't think it was Carmelo Merlino, uh, who seems to be a prime suspect popping up <laughs> left and right. He's dead now, but, I mean, we, we talked to him uh, several times and uh, we concluded Mello really doesn't have them. Um, and uh, he is trying to get the reward money. 
but who isn't? So. Wasn't in fact a time where he said to Tony, um, I don't have them, but Tchaikovsky does. So I'll get them from Tchaikovsky and then we'll turn them in for $5 million. And that's when Dave sits down with the FBI agent on the Gardner case with Tchaikovsky at the VA hospital in, 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 in Jamaica Plain. And Tchaikovsky says to him, listen, I don't have him, but Molino may. I'll get him from Molino. So at that point, it, in my mind is, you know, a hall of mirrors in the intelligence world. This is a hall of con men. Yeah. <laughs> I would not want his job mm -hmm. because even if we don't come up with it, we mm -hmm. can tell an extraordinary story. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. Neil Cronin was the case agent from the Bureau who was handling the Gardner case, and he had heard this song and dance from a lot of different people. So, you know, his thinking was, okay, if you say you've got them or can get them or whatever, whenever you get them, I want you to take a picture. You have the paintings, you have you, and you have a, a newspaper from today's date with today's date on it in front of it. So I know what, you know, this is really the day you know, a recent picture. And nobody could do that. Nobody ever, of all the people that came forward, and, and there's lots of them with, with information, nobody could ever establish ownership or possession. Well, keep listening. Um, uh, thank you so much for talking to us from your space of expertise and for expanding on the question, I don't know. <laughs> um, we appreciate it. Um, we're going to take some audience questions now, um, but just I'm going to I'm going to ask for another. Thank you very much, Candice. Um, I'm going to ask for another like super quick lightning round, but just Kelly and Jack, because you guys haven't talked for a minute. Um, so there's only so much we can fit into these 30 minute episodes, right? Um, and there are plenty of them. Um, that everyone should go and listen to. Uh, but what's something that didn't make it to the, didn't make it off the cutting room floor, or ended up on the cutting room floor, I should say, Kelly? Um, what's, what's a story or an angle that you wish you could have chased that you didn't quite get to chase? Uh, Whitey Bulger. Um, mm. There is a theory that the, uh, the Gardner art is in Northern Ireland. And I was in, Northern, I was in Ireland in uh, May. And I was there with the Scotland Yard, former Scotland Yard undercover man who was absolutely convinced that the key to solving the Gardner case is in Ireland. And I so want to do the story of Ireland and the Gardner art and at least this one thief because it's so complex and I think there's so much there, but I don't know that we'll have time. Season two. <laughs> um, what about you, Jack? Um, Steve's, Steve's giving him suggestions. <laughs> Good idea. Not what I was thinking. Um, there were so many art thefts in New England before the Gardner heist. There were hundreds of them. And there was a period of time when I was convinced that we could do multiple episodes. We could on all of the crimes that predated the Gardner and what those tell us about the Gardner. And the, there were people who were experts at 
disarming uh, alarm systems in small museums. Other people who are good at tricking cops in places like Greenwich, Connecticut, and on the North Shore, and on Cape Cod, there were so many paintings stolen <laughs> in New England in the 20 or so years that never came back um, because they were lower profile, they weren't Vermeers, they weren't Rembrandts, and we sat down with one guy who stole a good chunk of them, and he would not go on the record. And the thing that he said that haunts me about the Gardner heist is that when he had no place else to sell, his, he, would, he would try to sell them on the black market, he would try to sell them to a dealer. Sometimes he would sell them back to the FBI. If none of that worked, he would burn them. He said he did it hundreds of times. And this is, oh, sorry, go ahead. This is not Please. lightning. This is not no, lightning. Sorry, there's no lightning with the gardener. You can't ask a lightning question with the gardener. I'm not Dave Nadalski. I don't have a one word answer. Um, <laughs> I wish I did. I wish I did. But uh, that just, uh, it makes, uh, unfortunately, makes a lot of sense as a possibility mm -hmm. for what happened to the gardener heist that it could have happened. It does, I hope it didn't. It's a good chance it didn't. But I could never shake that since he said it. This is an excellent transition to our first audience question, which is, what is the likelihood that any of the artwork has been destroyed? Um, so, anybody want to take a crack at that? Percentage? Over, under? I don't know. <laughs> um, I'll just re recount one, um, uh, one interview I had with a guy who's... It was the first chapter of my book, and a guy named Louis Royce, and Louis had uh, scouted the uh, the uh, the gardener for a score since growing up in in South Boston, delivering papers to Whitey Bulger's house. He used to tell me, but he um, he told me that uh, as he didn't drink, and I was pouring myself another glass of wine, taking my notes in an interview. He said to me, "There's no way they would be destroyed." I said, why? He said, you see that bottle? The bottle isn't important, but the cork is. We'll hold on to the cork. And he reminded me, he said, every mobster you see whose house is raided, it takes two days to empty a mobster's house. Why? Because they keep everything. They're pack rats. <laughs> they're not hoarders, but they're pack rats. They don't destroy anything. So it's not much evidence, but it's one thing that keeps me going, say, stay on the story. It's within the, within the 781508 area code. Somewhere there are 13 pieces of priceless art. Fair enough. Here's another question. Crimes always have collateral damage. Who or what is the biggest collateral damage of the Gardner heist? Kelly? I would say that we all are because we don't get to see these works. I mean, I, I really mean it. Um, and, and Holly, the former director of the Gardner Museum, likens the loss to what if you could never hear Beethoven or Louis Armstrong. I say, what if you could never hear Prince? But I, I think that it's true. Um, if, you, if you value these works as, as a piece of who we are, then we all lose that they're gone. This is an interesting question that I think you guys get at in the show, but, but I'd love to hear you talk about it a little bit more. Um, why do you think the robbers stole the pieces they did? Um, uh, and there's a, a little sort of sub-question here. The Chinese beaker, I believe I'm reading that right, has always been a fascinating choice. 
We have a lot of theories about this. Go on. Come in close. Okay, so what we know is that Rembrandt is the most stolen artist because his body of work is so vast, so it's easier to fake an attribution to Rembrandt. So we know that uh, from the thieves' movements, we know that they went to the Dutch room first, we know that they took the Rembrandts first. How do you explain the Chinese beaker? It's not even that pretty. How do you explain the bronze eagle finial? In our reporting, we met the art thief who said that he used to case the Gardner Museum with another art thief. And our art thief said, I wanted that beaker because he's an aficionado of Asian art and his friend wanted the eagle. And so that makes sense. Were they trophy grabs? Did they just snatch and grab? We don't know. But what we can tell you about the beaker is that it took some effort. It wasn't just something sitting on a table or knocked over. They had to cut through layers of fabric on the table and then pry it off of a metal base. They wanted that coup. So hmm. maybe we know who did it or who inspired it. They wanted that coup. This that, they wanted that coup is a line that was in a, one of our episodes like eight times. And, and it has to be there. And we just were debating how many times. How many times do we need to say it? And I, yeah. the good thing is that we're here is that we got to say it we twice. Got two I'm gonna more. Say, I just want to say they wanted that coup. I, <laughs> I've, I've been made fun a lot over the course of this by my, my esteemed colleagues. And I've been promised by other people my own um, cross-stitch and I think my cross-stitch will say... They wanted that coup. They wanted that coup. Fair. Um, I want to pose this question to the, the self-proclaimed twins down there. Gentlemen, um, this comes from Zoe, age 10. Were you ever scared interviewing someone? Not me, I had a gun. <laughs> What about you? Solid one-liners from this guy. No, I mean, the, uh, the work that we do as reporters, uh, you don't do the dangerous work that these guys, these people do. Uh, you announce yourself, you tell them what you want, you go to their seconds, which is usually an attorney, you show up, you ask them the questions you promised you would ask them, you take meticulous notes, and you tell them you're going to write it straight. That's all you have going for you. But you, you know, as reporters, we ask the questions that any of you would ask, but you never surprise people, you never, and you never disappoint them as far as writing it straight. So that's why I've never, ever been uh, afraid. What I know. Hmm. Um, I'm not sure who this is directed to, so I'll let anybody take it. Uh, how did you get access to confidential 302s? Which reminds me that tax season is coming? I don't know, that's just like a, I'm not sure. Wait a minute, wait a minute. I don't think there were any confidential 302s involved, were there? There were? Uh-oh. A 302 is an FBI report. We, we got some. That's all I'm comfortable saying. My brother 
My brother Fair is enough. nodding his head. <laughs> if, we, if we wanted to tell you, we would have told you in the podcast. <laughs> um, we got them. Fair. I guess we're not getting an answer on that one. Um, oh, my lightning round uh, suggestions have now been incorporated into audience questions. I like it. Uh, lightning round. Apparently this is for all of you. Um, what painting is your favorite and why? Of the ones that were stolen, presumably? I think we could go with that, yeah. Uh, we'll start with Kelly. Who, me? Oh. Yeah. I don't know. I haven't seen them. I'm, I'm, I'm really, I'm not being flip. I want to, I want to see them. You know, I'm, I'm, uh... What, what, what's the... That's this a painting, is, so isn't we it? have Storm on the Sea of Galilee, and what I love about Storm on the I can tell you what I like because I've read about them, but I haven't, you know, so, okay, I had this idea that when you see a piece of art, it's an interactive experience. You, you are experiencing what the artist wants you, uh, intended for you to experience, but you also experience, in spite of yourself, what you bring to it. I don't know what I bring to it. I've never stood before it. I can tell you what it was like to stand in front of the stretcher that once held Storm on the Sea of Galilee. That almost made me cry. It was like seeing a dead body. And that's, really, that was a moment when I, I realized, holy moly, there are victims in this story. Uh, and I, I would love the opportunity to see these works. I would say Storm on the Sea of Galilee just because I love that Rembrandt painted himself in. He's like, yeah. <laughs> and I like that. Definitely not the Chinese beaker you're saying is not. I didn't, I didn't mean to put down the Chinese beaker. <laughs> Somebody I, wanted it. I just meant to say someone really wanted it. <laughs> Jack? Um, I, I think that Storm on the Sea is the most dramatic, and it's the one I've thought a lot about. But the one I'm most perplexed by is the Vermeer, the concert, because I don't think I've ever seen a Vermeer, and... They, there's only 34 or so, I say or so because it's not totally clear exactly how many there are of his, but there's not a lot. And my understanding is that he was this master of light and you don't, that does not come across in a photo of that painting, which is all I've ever seen. I look at it and I can say, okay, I guess that's a masterpiece. Like, what do I know? But... I have the feeling that if you stood in front of it, you would get it. Um, and, and apparently Norman Rockwell was really inspired by Vermeer. He does things with light. And that was something that connected with me at one point when I looked at a Rockwell in the process of reporting this, I was like, oh, that's Vermeer, that's light. I get it now. Um, but I still don't know what it would be like to see the shadow and the light cast across the floor hmm. next to the people singing. And that's the thing I think I'd most like to see. Steve? Yeah, I think the, the, the painting that I would be most interested in seeing of, I mean, this, this Sea of Galilee is the only time he painted the sea, Rembrandt painted the sea. He loved it so much he painted it, etched himself in, hanging over the gunnels. Um, and uh, there were enough people who appreciated art and knew his work that they put a little border up so that people didn't point at, uh, put their finger on the canvas. But my, the one I want to know most about is the, is the Manet that was stolen from the Blue Room. And if you haven't heard the second, second episode in which we talk of 
the possibility of there being a theft within the theft, that in fact the bad guys only thought they stole 12. In fact, it was in, in, when in, in fact there was an extra painting stolen from the Blue Room and how that fits into this whole extraordinary um, uh, hall of, you know, hall of con men, hall of mirrors, but also hall of masterpieces. This, it's an extraordinary that that painting was stolen from a room where there are no signs of bad guys being in the room. Everywhere else, bad guys' footsteps are shown because the museum had a, um, a motion detector's uh, equipment installed. There is no footsteps of bad guys in that room, yet that room is missing the Manet. So that's the one I want to, that's the one I would like to, one if I could see the Manet. Dave? Oh, I, was, I was afraid you were going to call my name. <laughs> um, I got to tell you, my favorite painting is probably dogs playing poker. Okay. <laughs> totally fair. Totally you see fair. why we love this guy? <laughs> I think we can get you a copy of that. I think that one is... Report is um, best source. <laughs> totally fair. Um, I, I like this question. Uh, what happens to stolen paintings in general? What kinds of lives do they have after they've been stolen? I always thought that they just get placed in Dr. Evil's lair above the sharks with laser beams on their heads. But wait, how, do, how does this stuff exist in the real world? So it's, it's, it goes back to it's not what you think, which is people who steal art are not generally are not art thieves, they're criminals. And stealing a painting is part of a portfolio of dealing drugs and dealing with weapons and things like that. And art is often just a commodity. Um, it's kind of stupid to steal a Rembrandt. Like, there are a couple of really good reasons to do it, to get yourself out of prison, but you can't sell it. It's a lot smarter to steal from, <laughs> like endorsing this. If you want to steal a painting, go to your local gallery. Um, but you, you don't want to steal a portrait. You know, you don't want to steal something really distinctive. And there are enough people who steal paintings who understand that. Um, Kelly and I talk a lot about in the mornings about our Google alert about art thefts. And 99% of them is somebody walked into a gallery, you know, with a camera on them and ripped it off the wall and they're trying to find the guy. That's a lot of art theft. And when they find, the, when they find them, they find them, you know, that they have another criminal, they have a long criminal record. So, and then sometimes, and I'll just add to that, in the US, it's not very common to steal from a major museum. In Europe, it's really common. And think about how much more art they have and think about the churches that they have that are full of art and, and just it broaden your definition of art, anything historical, anything that's unique, right? So there's more an organized crime element to art theft in Europe where there is a black market and there is a ransom market. In the US, the, the Gardner heist is the total anomaly. There's just really almost nothing like it. Well, and to piggyback off what Jack said, I, I was astonished to learn in the course of our reporting that um, ISIS supports its mission by stealing art, by looting antiquities. And uh, so- The so, Taliban did And the Taliban them. did before it. And it's, you know, and, and, uh, and so sometime in the 1970s that we saw across Europe with these, as Jack said, unprotected churches, poorly guarded museums, 
was art theft. And it, it kind of pierced this veil. I think, you know, I think of an honor system and I think we sort of think of, you know, you don't, who would steal from a church, who would steal from a museum. But it began to happen and art napping as a term emerged as a thing. And um, the people who steal art, we, we want to think of as this kind of, you know, goatee stroking Dr. No in his lair with his masterpiece. And really the evidence shows that it's, um, it's much cruder. It's not about the art. It's not about loving the art. It's about uh, trading it as a commodity. And if you were to sell it, you would only get about 10% of the value. And uh, as Jack said, I'm not advocating, but you would want to go for something that isn't very well known. Just a tip. <laughs> Um, okay, so I have a last, a last question uh, from the audience here. Are there any surviving relatives of Isabella Stewart Gardner? If so, what do they think? I don't know what they think. Yes, there are. Um, there was uh, a lovely man. I think I tried to get an interview with him. Jack, his name is Jack Gardner. Isabella Stewart Gardner's uh, husband was named Jack. Her son, who died before he was two, was named Jack. I don't know what they think. I know that um, from my contact with the museum that they care deeply about Isabella Stewart Gardner's legacy and that they want to see these works back. And they were very excited to know that we were doing something that might help in the effort to, at the very least, raise awareness of what these things look like so that on the off chance that someone sees it, um, they can say something. Thank you all for being here. Thank you to Kelly, Jack, Steve, Dave. Please give them a hand. We have more episodes coming, so we'll be in your feed again soon. If you haven't already, subscribe to our podcast in Apple Podcasts and leave us a review. It helps people find the show. And comb through the archives, see the evidence, and read 28 years of Gardner Heist reporting at bostonglobe.com slash last scene. Last Scene is a production of WBUR and the Boston Globe. Special thanks to Ben Brock Johnson, Jane Bowman, Erica Hale, Erin McGran, Lisa Viola, and Matt Reed. Our consulting producer is Stephen Kirkjian. Production and sound design by John Parati. Eve Zukoff is our production assistant. Additional production by Catherine Brewer. Our digital team is Amy Gorell, Tiffany Campbell, Daigo Fujiwara, Jesse Costa, Robin Lubbock, and Elizabeth Gillis. We had help from the Boston Globe's Shelley Murphy, Brendan McCarthy, and John Plumaki. Digital help from Heather Cyrus, Jason Tui, Devin Smith, and Ryan Huddle. Editing by Jessica Alpert. Our executive producer is Iris Adler. I'm senior producer and reporter Kelly Horan. Special thanks to artist Sophie Cal, who first used the title Last Seen at the Gardner Museum in 1991 and who granted us permission to use it. If you have a tip, theory, or thought, call our tip line at 617-929-7999. That's 617 617- 929-7999 Follow us on Twitter and Instagram 
at Last Scene Podcast. All one word. <laughs>